A Beautiful Life, the title of that song we just sang together, and certainly much about that, does remind us of the beauty connected to a life based in the Word of God. It's good to be back this evening. I realize with the time change, things look a little different outside, but aren't we thankful that we can come together in the peacefulness of this hour to reflect a little bit more in our worship unto God and as a part of that, to think about one aspect of the Word of God. The title I've given to the lesson tonight is The Literature of the Bible. And I hope you have your Bible handy and available. We'll be looking at several things contained within it. But all the while, in many ways, there will be an overview character to at least portions of this particular lesson tonight. I suspect that a few things we ought to do at least at the outset would be to highlight the word literature and at least express what it is we mean rather fully by the thought of this lesson. As you can see at the top, there's a great deal of joy connected with various verses in the Bible as it relates to the Word of God. In Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Well, surely, as Jeremiah the long ago asserted it, there was great joy. There was great rejoicing connected to the Word of God. In Psalm 103, or rather 119, verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, a sweetness connected to the Word of God, and all those verses sound wonderful. They sound fantastic. But isn't it rather evident that surely what's involved in it would be an appreciation of what those verses are saying, what the thought of the Word of God is, to rightly divide it. The lesson text of a moment ago was taken from 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's something to be said about the right division of the word of God, whereby one can then appreciate the message contained in that text or passage and rightly apply it to life. A part of that will relate to the literature of the Bible. And so tonight's lesson will in fact surround that subject and develop that topic a little bit more in detail. We'll do that beginning like this. First of all, let's highlight at least briefly some basic thoughts about literature. Each of us are somewhat familiar with different kinds or styles of literature. And surely the word at the top, just my very, very brief way of trying to define it, it has to do with writing, the substance and character of it, and the way it's presented. Well, when it comes to the Word of God, you and I know that that's going to have a rather critical point here rather shortly before us. But at least to lead to that idea, literature comes in a lot of different styles, doesn't it? You might open the Herald Citizen and read an article, but that by itself is very different than reading a cookbook. And neither of them is, in fact, anything like reading a comic book. And none of that's like at all reading an instruction manual. And so the kind of literature that you're reading will no doubt have some bearing on the style with which one reads it and the way in which one reads it and the way in which you appreciate that which it says. May I suggest the same thing is true of the Bible. Although the Bible does have 66 books, and although it does involve 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, the style in which some of them are presented is different. Tonight, why don't we list or highlight 
some of those differing styles with a view toward appreciating those differences and seeking to make those applications to how we read it. As you close that particular slide, it takes us again to our desire to understand the Bible as we read it. And that understanding will involve these differences in literature. And so this next slide is a picture. And I realize full well that some of the writing on the edges of those books may be too small to read from where you're sitting. But I'm sure you already know what's involved in it. It is someone's attempt to, in fact, present the Word of God, the various 66 books within it, but to appreciate the structure and the groupings and the categories in which they occur. And so as you start at the top left, you'll note Old Testament are the ones on the left of that picture. And you'll notice the first five books at the top, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Well, there's a certain style, a literary consideration that goes with them. But that's different than what you'll need to notice in that next section, the books of law in the Old Testament. Well, those books, I'm sorry, the books of history in the Old Testament, those books, again, are of a different kind or character or structure. Beyond that, you'll notice books of poetry in the Old Testament. Do you remember reading poetry in high school? or perhaps at some other time in life, and how that you read poetry very different than you read chronological narratives. Well, we shouldn't be too surprised then that those poetical books would in fact be beneficially read in a slightly different cadence or fashion than would be the case of those other books. Then there are 17 books of prophecy. Well, to say it that way is to remind us then that the Old Testament by itself has a number of divisions which it can be very fruitful to appreciate. As you go to the right-hand side of that bookcase, the New Testament books again fall in various divisions. This particular one lists the four gospel accounts first, followed by the book of history, the book of Acts, followed by the, the letters, as at least this one particularly describes it. And then there are the general letters following that. And then finally though a single book of prophecy. Now all of that highlights again that this is uh, some rendition of a picture that might set that before us. And this picture just simply puts it in a more block style where, again, the books are listed in these various segments. And you note by color that several things about them quickly, in fact, come to mind. Well, as we begin tonight to think about the various literary considerations of the Bible. We surely will be somewhat on the brief side, but I did think that with the Bible in hand, we could at least point out a few quick observations. It begins with law. Now, you may have noted that the Old Testament had five books of law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. At least that's often the way they're presented. But isn't it true, the New Testament will have certain things we can say as it relates to law. Look at these comments with me, please, if you would. To think about the various books of law, isn't it true that in a rather strong fashion, regulations, rules, various matters connected to absolute expectations are placed before us? Well, surely that was true of those Old Testament books. You might recall in that set of books are the Ten Commandments, for example, 
But also in that we have hundreds of other commandments which the children of Israel were expected to keep. Quite often, you remember, the Levites were addressed and there were certain things they were to do as they carried out the services of the sacrifices and the activities at the tabernacle and the features of how they would diagnose and provide counsel to many particular activities of life. Again, laws. I think it'd be easy to comment, however, that it's not that all of the chapters of those five books are all law, for isn't it true? Some of it is beautiful history. Like the creation account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where did man come from? And where did the universe come from? And we have a presentation of a chronological development of how God created it and the way in which He did it. To say all of that perhaps is to say, as you'll note about the middle of that slide, that there's something rather significant about the connection of law to sin. Didn't Paul say it like this in the New Testament? Apart from the law, I would never have known what sin was. God has always had laws He expected people to keep. That's no different than today, of course. The law of Christ is in effect. And so, one cannot possibly understand the transgression of law unless you know what the laws are. And so clearly it's very important to appreciate the laws that God has presented to us. Maybe it is in that light. Look at the way that the wording is presented in verses like these. Romans 8 verse 2. The law of the Spirit of the life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Twice in that verse, Paul used the word law as a reminder of the status in which he then was and the status in which all of us are as well. We have been made free from the law of sin and death through Christ. Now that kind of blessing and that kind of wonderful matter is something that Paul understood keenly and certainly you and I do as well. In 1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul made reference to the law of Christ. There are times today when there's a bit of a misunderstanding. Some today think that there is no law. We live under grace and that alone. That's a little bit short-sighted. There is a law in force today. Several times it's called the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2 to be one of them. No wonder in that connection we too today still appreciate the place of law. And as we appreciate it, we certainly would perhaps read those elements in a slightly different way than we might read certain other literary structures in the Bible. To close that particular slide, wouldn't it then be easy to say when we encounter the poetical books or maybe the other prophetical books, we surely would read them differently. But let's tackle the history books first. It would certainly be fair to say we mustn't overlook too easily the actual narratives that present to us the history contained in, the, in, in, in fact, the Word of God. And so the Old Testament blesses us with 12 books of history. Beginning at Joshua and going all the way to Esther, you find in large measure the fullness of the Old Testament presentation of history. History is important, isn't it? Not only do we appreciate the history, of, say, of our country, or the history of perhaps your family or mine. But we have here, by inspiration of God, the history of what it was deemed important for the Holy Spirit to provide. The history of the people of Israel 
And today, we have, of course, a New Testament history book called Acts, in which we will see in a moment the sweetness of some of the most wonderful presentations of all. A few comments about those Old Testament history books first. I mentioned that they span from Joshua to Esther, but contained in that group, you might recall the book of Judges. That book spans over 350 years, it would seem. And so a large amount, you see, of that history connected to the development of the people of God and what happened to them after they conquered and inhabited the land of Canaan is contained in that book. We studied it on Sunday morning, gave attention to each one of the chapters, and we saw in it, did we not, some interesting developments of how the people came to be under Samuel what they then were. Other than that, what about the six books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles? Sometimes these are not as much favorites of some as they are of other books of the Old Testament. But we should understand they are vital. They do present much that is of great value to us. I would simply comment that not all the history books are in chronological order. So you and I have to be careful. As you study the history books of the Bible, realize that sometimes they are in order chronologically, but not always. And so as we read them, may we be cautious and careful to try to put them in the proper placement so that we can connect them to the other books of the Bible in the correct way. Maybe at the bottom of that slide, could I just point out one interesting thought? In the infinite wisdom of God... There were occasions in which great deals of information was given about certain things, but lesser amounts connected to others. Just because a lesser amount is given with respect to some things, we shouldn't appreciate it was a lesser amount of time. And just because a larger amount of time is given with respect to other things, we shouldn't just assume that it was more important or that a larger amount of time was involved. Case in point might be the reign of Manasseh. You realize he, in fact, reigned the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah. But yet it's tallied in only 20 verses. So again, the connection is not always just assumed that smaller verses mean lesser time. It was God's wisdom to develop certain points more notably and more in detail. The last thing on that slide... The purpose of those historical books is to allow us to place in the correct fashion not only the events that took place, but to connect them to the wider scope of the great revelation of God. How did Jesus fit into it? How did the church fit into it? How did the ultimate development of what would be the gospel fit into it? As we study the Old Testament, that is much of what should come to our mind. The next slide will develop that even more thoroughly as you look at the New Testament book of history, the book of Acts. Acts has three main matters that one might claim are found within it. In its 28 chapters, we encounter this, the establishment of the church. We realize how grand that was on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Old Testament had looked forward to the eventuality of that organization. It had spoken much about what its thrust and behavior would be, and finally it came into existence. Surely that's a great point. 
We also notice in that same book of Acts, however, two other grand issues. First, how do you become a Christian? It's not to say that other books don't provide some information about that, but let's face it. The book of Acts has ten clear-cut examples of how you become a Christian. And so if we do today what they did then, we can become today what they became then, faithful New Testament Christians. And so when we look at what they did on Pentecost, or we look at what Paul did to obey the gospel in chapter 9, or what the Ethiopian nobleman did in chapter 8, or what Lydia did in chapter 16, you get the idea. What they did under the direct preaching of the apostles and others is still what we are expected to do today. The third thing we might note about the book of Acts it provides in large measure the history for the remainder of the New Testament. So, for example, when the gospel came to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, that would be a grand place to start before we ever read verse 1 of the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. How did the gospel come to that city? What was the background of it? Same for the books of Thessalonians. When the gospel first came to Thessalonica in Acts 17, that should be the background that we would read before we read the first verse of 1st or 2nd Thessalonians. All of that reminds us then that these books, the book of Acts, provides a powerful background for the history of the New Testament. Let's close that slide then like this. You might note at this point that the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it might well be that we could include them here. Now, we know that they, to some extent, are biographical. In fact, I'm going to share more about that in a moment, but there are some who might incorporate them here. I'm going to do it this way. Let's give them a slide of their own. The Gospel Accounts of the New Testament. We realize these books detail the one who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. The one who came to set before us God in the flesh, Matthew 1, 21 and 22 and 23. They detail the greatest life ever lived. Lived without sin. Lived without being separated from God. Lived without any of the problems which often sin brings into the lives of humanity. Jesus walked in the flesh. John 1.14 declares He lived in the flesh, and as such, He manifested to us God the Father. As you and I read then those four books, or give attention to them, it's, it's not fair to say it's completely biographical. We know today, if you go to the library and check out a biography of somebody's life, it will separate the person's life typically into sections and give great detail about it. Have you ever thought about some of these New Testament books like Mark? The entirety of the Lord's life, 16 chapters. Luke, the entirety of the Lord's life in 24 chapters. Again, it's not fair maybe to call it only a biography. It doesn't highlight, you see, much about the first part of His life at all. What it focuses on is the message He delivered to save the souls of people. That's what those accounts by and large are about. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19, 10. Why, in fact, are those things written, John 20, 31? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in His name.
That's why they were written. Isn't it amazing then to appreciate in those books, John even could say it like this in John 21, 25, if everything the Lord ever did had been written, John said even the world itself wouldn't be able to hold the books. Now, maybe there's a bit of hyperbole in that, but the fact still remains. So much more could have been written, but this is what was written. And the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve it so that you and I could have that record of the life of the Lord, the parables that He taught, the miracles He performed, the teachings He set forth. Because didn't He tell Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. At that point, look at what else we might say about these gospel accounts. First of all, may I suggest that we refer to them that way. Let's try not to call them gospels. There's only one gospel. Paul told that to the Galatians. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preach, let it be a curse, Galatians 1.8. There is but one gospel. Let's call them the gospel accounts. And as we do that, wouldn't we be, in fact, consistent with the unity of the gospel and present it as the message of the Lord, that particular inspired record you see of His life? In addition to those gospel accounts, we wouldn't be too surprised then to know they are a powerful basis for much of the rest of the New Testament. With that, let's look at yet another of these literary styles, the epistles. You might remember there are 21 epistles in the New Testament, commencing with Romans and ending with Jude. These, again, are books that have so much to place to you and me in our daily walk of life. Think of it this way with me. The gospel accounts detail the powerful and wonderful life of Christ, the greatest life ever lived. The book of Acts tells you how to become a Christian by clear-cut examples. The 21 books that follow are how to live every day the Christian life. How do I think? How do I talk? How do I act? And when I fail in those things, how do I fix it? In so many ways, these books challenge us every day to think as we ought to think. Consider this one. Think on these things. What's true? What's just? What's pure? What's lovely? What's of good report? Philippians 4.8 in other words, these get down to the nitty-gritty of your life and mine. What am I supposed to think about? And upon those thoughts, how do I speak? What language do I use? How do I talk to other people? Ephesians 4.29 will say, Do so with grace. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. How do I treat other people? You treat them the way you wish that they treat you. Matthew 7, verse 12. You see, these kind of discussions and these kind of matters are then exemplified in the life of Paul, in the life of those others of whom we read in these general epistles. Maybe it's interesting in that kind of light to notice, there's also a fair inclusion of some things that I must not do. Not only what I should do, must do, but what I should not do. We're quite familiar with listings like Galatians 5, verses 19 and following. The works of the flesh. Don't you commit adultery? Don't you be at strife? Don't you, in fact, commit the other things listed? 
Now, one by one, as we take note of them, we realize our Heavenly Father loves us enough to tell you, this will hurt you if you do it. This will harm you and your influence and those you love if you do this. And thus, we seek to bring every thought into captivity to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. When you and I think about those epistles, we also find in it a powerful element of joy. To those who live in accordance to these matters, we find words like this, I know whom I believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 2 Timothy 1.12 And Paul could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me at that day, but not to me only, but to all of them also that love is appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. The confidence then that the knowledge of these books brings, and the appreciation of having rightly divided them, oh, how transforming it really is. As you and I close that slide then, might we say, we've looked at least in some interesting ways at a lot of the literary structures of the Bible. There's one main category left. I've saved it to last. It is the one I've called prophecy as well as apocalyptic. The books of prophecy, you might remember 17 of them occurred in the Old Testament. Beginning, of course, at Isaiah and going all the way to Malachi. It is sometimes useful to notice that those are divided into two categories. There's the five major prophets and the twelve minor prophets. But they're all books of prophecy. When you and I think about them, may we keep in mind it's true that there were certain passages in them that foretold the future from that day. And that's certainly a wonderful element because it brought about the confidence one could have in the Bible. This is the only book on earth that predicts the future. Man can't do it. He never has been able to do it. And therefore, when we find hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that detailed exactly, minutely, and precisely what was going to happen, and sometimes it even told when it was going to happen, and when that came to pass, exactly as it in fact had been foretold, it gave to those people a confidence that that was the Word of God. Because men, again, have never been able to predict the future. Not the way the Bible does it. I know there are times that people can make general predictions about the weather or about the state of the economy. May we never forget, the Old Testament doesn't just contain general prophecies. It's not that somebody was going to be born at some arbitrary time in the future. Daniel told exactly when he was going to be born. Micah told where he was going to be born. And wasn't, didn't David predict how he was going to die? That he was going to be pierced in Psalm 22? And did we not read that the organization that he would found, in fact, would last throughout all the ages of time? Once it, was destroyed, once it was established, it would never be destroyed. Daniel 2.44 The point is, those were not just general prophecies. They were specific. And they came to pass exactly as the writer foretold they would. We can have great confidence then in the Bible, among other things because the books of prophecy are exactly that. 
But may we not forget that those books of prophecy were more than just foretelling the future. They were, in the majority, messages for the people of that day. And so when Micah would preach to the people of his day, he would urge them to repent and urge them to be faithful and urge them to put away the various sinful activities of their lives. And along the way, he might well shadow forth future issues concerning the Lord or His kingdom. But those, you see, were not the majority of his message. Those Old Testament books maybe bring to our mind there is one New Testament book of prophecy, at least as it's labeled. It's the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. That book, of course, is written in a very intriguing way, figuratively in many ways with signs and symbols according to Revelation 1.1. But at this point, that brings me to the last word I used, apocalyptic. There's a great deal of interest in our present day, is it there, with apocalyptic things. And I suppose it's been that way for at least two or three decades now. The end of time. Well, the word apocalypse, remember it just means a revealing, an unveiling, a setting forth of what once had been hidden or concealed. Well, when the Bible does that, it is the God of heaven pulling back the curtain and showing us what we otherwise would not know. He did that in the Revelation in many ways, didn't He? But didn't He do it in some of the Old Testament books as well? There at the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to note that there are, oh, a few Old Testament apocalyptic books, like Ezekiel and Zechariah and portions of Daniel. Well, when we read them, it's like reading Revelation in that the style of literature is the same. And so we read about things in Revelation like beasts and bowls and vials and dragons. Now, those kind of things are not common in the literature of Paul at all. We don't read them in Romans, and we don't read like that in Galatians. We don't read like that in Genesis either. And so as we read those apocalyptic books, we surely read them slightly differently because we wish to rightly divide them. We must never read them like they're a narrative in chronological order because they're not. It's truth presented in signs and symbols, presented in ways, again, to capture our attention and allow us to see that God is presenting us truth in a slightly different way than some of those other literary types of the Bible. The last thing on that slide is a reminder that there are certain chapters which, over the ages, have been the source of so much presentation which, quite frankly, has been misguided at the very least. There are those who will use Ezekiel chapters 37, 38, and 39. You remember Ezekiel's valley of dry bones in chapter 37 and his discussion of Gog and Magog in chapters 38 and 39. And today, you on occasion may find many books written which purport to set forth what that was. And many a televangelist can use it with great picturesque and eloquent language to present what it never did and does not now teach. We have to be mindful. Those chapters are apocalyptic in their thrust, and we will interpret them rightly. Isn't the same true of Revelation? Many things have been said about those beasts 
and about the things occurring with, say, the battle of Armageddon in chapter 16 of Revelation. But remember, men have often said things about that which, not, which, which is not true. We'll let the Bible present what those things are and interpret them in light of the literature in which they've been presented. As we come near the close of this lesson tonight, the goal has been to merely discuss some of the literary types which are found in the Bible and the statements, at least in general, that could be made about them. And so on this last slide, I've listed them in a summary form. In the Old Testament, we have 39 books. Five of them are books of law. Twelve of them are books of history. Five of them are books of poetry. And that leaves us 17 books of prophecy. As we read those different literary types, may we be blessed to rightly divide them and use them correspondingly. In the New Testament, the 27 books divided as follows, the four gospel accounts, the single book of history, the book of Acts, 21 epistles, the Pauline ones and the general ones, and the single book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. All of it's the Word of God. 66 books that present a golden thread from Genesis to Revelation of what God wished to convey to the human family in written form. What a blessing it has been to the human family. And what a blessing it shall be throughout the ages of life upon this earth. As we look forward then to rightly dividing it, we come back to the text with which we began, our desire to rightly divide the Word of God. Let's use the literary structures of the Bible to our advantage as we interpret it as God would wish us to do it, and to thus use it to bolster our faith and to be those who would live in the way God would have us to live. Tonight it may be that there's someone in this assembly who upon reflection on the Word of God's teaching, you realize your life is not as it ought to be. You realize that's not just an arbitrary opinion of some man. If this book says my life is not as it ought to be, that settles the matter. There's no need to consult any other source. I just need to do something about it. If that's the need of your life tonight, don't wait and don't delay. Why not make things right this evening? Come humbly before the God of heaven, confessing your faults and errors, and begging His forgiveness through the blood of Christ. As a wayward child of God, that could be accomplished, of course, in just a matter of moments, and we'd be delighted to acknowledge your repentance and confession of those sins, and we certainly would be happy to pray on your behalf. If you have never become a Christian... What better night could there be than this, in which you make profession of your faith, you, of course, repent of sins. You confess that marvelous name of Jesus, and then you're baptized for the remission of sins. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance or help in those ways, or just for general encouragement by way of faith and prayer, we'd be happy to do that too. We will use this time as a convenient one to invite you to come. While together we stand and while we sing.